0: Thanks for listening to this Word in Your Ear podcast. If you'd like to get early access to all our productions ad-free, priority booking for our live events, and to take part in our weekly quiz, go to patreon.com slash Ear for more details.
1: Small details are big surfaces? Tight corners or odd shapes? Flat, rounded, textured or tall? Whatever your next project there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because rust new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from rust Jewelry isn't a gift you give just once. It's a way to remind your loved one of a beautiful moment every time they see it.
2: You're listening to a podcast from The Word.
3: Dave, I have a stack waddy for you. Good. And uh, we recorded a a podcast at 21 Soho the other night uh, with John Higgs, who's written a a fantastic book about the KLF, And it got me thinking about the profoundly eccentric activities of one of them, in particular, Bill Drummond, uh, that weren't mentioned in this book. And so here are five things perpetrated by the man the newspapers like to call the madcap pop star. Bill Drummond. Four of them are real and one invented by me, and you have to spot the ringer. Okay. Okay. Mm -hmm. So the first is, in 1995, he bought a photo entitled, A Smell of Sulphur in the Wind, and having failed to resell it for $20,000 that he paid for it, he cut it into 20,000 pieces, and went on the road selling them for a dollar each. Right? That's the first one. Mm -hmm. The second is, as a Dadaist naive art statement in 1997... He recorded a version of the William Tell Overture with an orchestra of amateur amateur musicians, among them Gloria Hunniford playing the oboe, (laughs) but it was blocked over a copyright issue. Okay? The third is as part of Belfast's Cathedral Quarter Arts Festival in 2004, he asked people to draw a line that intersects Belfast and Nottingham, the soup line, and if your house lay on that line, he would offer to come and visit you and cook up some nourishing vegetable broth. Okay. The fourth, when he was managing um, Echo and the Bunnymen and Teardrop, teardrop Explodes about 1980, he asked the Teardrops to play a gig in Papua New Guinea at precisely the time the Bunnymen were performing in Iceland as he was convinced that if he was standing on a particular manhole cover in Liverpool, at that moment, that something significant would happen, okay? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And the last one is that in 2014, to launch the world tour of his exhibition, The 25 Paintings, he made a raft from a bed and some oil drums. He loaded it with daffodils and he paddled it down the Grand Union Canal to Spaghetti (laughs) Junction, where he made a floral arrangement. Okay? Five things... Done by Bill Drummond. Which one of those isn't true?
0: Well, all immensely plausible, but I'm gonna plump for the ringer as being the soup line. Oh, right. Yes. Oh, that's thrilling. I've
3: cried, I've won for a change, I've oh, won. right,
0: okay, fine. No,
3: I've won, because actually it's the, the, it's the William Tell Overture recording. Because uh-huh. the William Tell Overture was recorded by the Portsmouth Sinfonia. Sinfonia,
0: Do you course. remember that
3: back in the day? So there's a slight red herring there by amateur musicians, but no, that, the rest of them uh, were true. I
0: did did slightly tweak the idea of that it was held back by a copyright issue because I didn't think think copyright would still uh, apply in the works of Rossini from however many hundred years ago it is, you know. So uh, I would agree. You've uh, you've won absolutely. I've won, but
3: it was very it was fascinating talking to John Higgs, particularly about the the million dollar incident the burning of the million pounds rather the burning of the million pounds because he said that they were daily haunted by having done that it's really interesting Uh,
0: isn't it i bet first of all can i first of all say uh, congratulations to mark for holding the fort this week when i was prevented from being at the word in your ear live event at 21 soho by a terrible case of man flu (laughs) <laughs> and Alex Gelb was prevented from being there uh, by a terrible case of being on a cruise liner somewhere warm. So you had to entirely hold the fort on your own, and you did. And so, I did. well done Thank you, you very you. much. Well very much done enjoyed to you. It, it all, all went very well. And, uh, yeah, we, we'd been talking about preparing for that, and sadly I wasn't able to be there. But uh, preparing for that, the thing that struck me was that the whole... The whole question of burning a million pounds seemed like an idea that belonged exclusively to that departed thing, the 20th century. Because it, cash be, doesn't really exist anymore. Prior to the 20th century, nobody would have talked about a million pounds. It, yeah, and it probably wouldn't have been... It, there wouldn't have been a paper representation of a million pounds, would there, in the, in the no. 19th century, 18th century, whatever. You know, so the the pound note, the five-pound note, the ten-pound note, whatever, completely 20th century invention, weren't they? They And then, And then come the end of the 20th century, they've gone away, haven't they? You know, it's the whole idea of wouldn't you like to have a bunch of, you know, 20-pound notes in in a bundle in front of you? Well, you just can't imagine it, really, can you nowadays, when you pay for absolutely everything with your phone, um, and so
3: you know, I went that... abroad for the first time recently without ever once getting any any euros. Went to France, we never had any cash at all at any point literally, never. This is the first time it's ever happened. I thought that's
0: weird. He says, <laughs> my, my wife still has this rather, rather traditional belief that you ought to, you know, just be su- supplied with the local currency before you go anywhere. And uh, you know, we drove all the way down to Italy you last or whatever. And of course you, you have loads of tolls and so the officer, well, you've got to have cash for the tolls. No, they don't want no, cash. Don't want cash. Nobody wants Nobody cash. Nobody wants your cash. Absolutely. I know. Your cash is not welcome. Not even a busker wants your cash anymore. You know, the busker advertises, you know, the um the swipe thing, which is where you pay for two pounds and so forth. So yeah, but I thinking about the million pounds. If I had publicly had a million pounds in cash money and then had destroyed it for whatever reason, art reason to draw attention to myself, I don't know what... I would be haunted by that I know, for the rest done, of my life really because because your children would yeah. look at you.
3: Well, they? Bill Drummond and Jimmy Cortier both have families and those families are fully aware that and and you know John Higgs is convinced that they did burn a million pounds. They certainly burned an absolutely enormous amount of money because the ash was analyzed and discovered to be comprised of, of the remains of 50 pound notes in large bundles. But the point is that you kind of you know, when Elton John squandered all that cash, people just thought, that's Elton John just spending money on flowers and presents, and that's fine. Nobody, Never mind, it still remained in the economy. But Absolutely. when they did it, people were thinking, that should have been a, a hospital wing, or it should have been something useful. It's gone, you know.
0: Did you and, ask uh, him about the tax implications of this? Because presumably, if you, you the tax authorities must need to know about this. Oh, problem. that's interesting. At the end of the year, you know, KLF Inc. or whatever, or the yes. individuals concerned, must have to uh, provide some accounting of this is the cash monies that we got in this year these are our expenses and this is what we spent or burned or whatever it must be written down somewhere (laughs) her majesty's government as it was in those days must have had to sign off on this they would and they would also have been presumably taxed on it wouldn't they well absolutely there was earnings that's what they chose to do with it you're burning net proceeds not gross <laughs> yeah you know? yeah because you you're all not allowed to do that you know as uh, you know witness other kind of uh, money losing stunts in the history of popular music do you remember the singing nun no oh, not even you're not even old enough oh i know? do remember singing dominica, dominica. oh yeah singing, singing nun it. big favorite of my elder sisters certainly anyway so singing nun whenever this is sixty. Two sixty-three or something, a huge international hit around about Christmas time, I think. Made fortunes, and she was a genuine nun, and she just uh, she gave the money away, didn't she? The, the yep. money that came up, she gave it away, but didn't pay the tax first. You know? And they came a knocking, and didn't they, they came a knocking two years. She later. said, "But that was charity. I mean, I gave it to the no, poor. It doesn't work like that. No, no. You know, it's come through you first of all." But um, so, yes, well done to you on uh, helming, as they would say, um, word in your ear with, uh, with John Hicks and Ian Brody. And Ian Brody, are those podcasts, I think the Ian Brody one's already out, actually. John Hicks will be out very soon. And We're yeah, a lot of fun. And we've got further event coming up uh, late this month on exactly what day? November 27th, we have Glenn
3: Matlock and uh, Pauline Murray. Pauline Murray. Penetration, yeah. It's a bit of a a
0: punk double bill.
2: So if you haven't got your tickets already, make haste. The Word Podcast. Prime cuts of popular culture served fresh each week.
3: So the, the 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 hot news this week piping involves up. piping up white hot news. It involves a group that have been with us all our lives and are <laughs> still here and are bowing out and uh, it was the it was the uh, the Beatles single which was I mean, the build up to that was extraordinary wasn't it? Didn't you enjoy it? I enjoyed The build up was
0: absolutely amazing because I have to tell you my my um, you know I knew this thing was happening some while ago and been whispers about this and uh, and then I was I was called up by Radio Times, uh, for whom I, I've written other things about the Beatles and said, Could we could we tempt you to write one more thing about the Beatles? And I thought, so what could it possibly be, you know? And uh it's so this this now and then single and and so forth. And so, you know, I went down about three weeks or a month ago or whatever to Apple HQ down in down in Knightsbridge, because it also fascinates me that these, that, that, that uh, you know all these businesses still need managing, and you know they still mm. need people to be thinking about them absolutely all the time. And Apple is no exception. And so I go down there, and uh, a couple of people from Radio Times are there, and we're and we're played, you know, the now and then single, and then we're uh, we're played the short film which's been made to, to which I think was shown on the one show last night or Yeah, Oliver earlier. Murray's 12 minute film, that's right, yeah. yeah. And then and then saw the the Peter Jackson video for the same thing. Uh, and you know, so that was interesting and then I spoke to Giles Martin who was very interesting. Um because at the same time they're putting out the the kind of expanded red and blue albums which Records which you and I, you and I probably have a strange history with, because of you know being original Beatles fans. You know, but that's kind of separate, separate issue. And so you know, went off and, and wrote this thing for the Radio Times. And this appeared in the Radio Times this week with a cover featuring the Beatles. You know, which you and I were looking at earlier in the week and just thinking. My God, it's good to have a cover of the Beatles, isn't it? It is not you it know, It just works so well. It is
3: generally good to have. It's just the Beatles themselves are a good thing. I couldn't feel that like more strongly this week when The Guardian always do a kind of page three, kind of lighthearted uh, thing about, oh, they found Michelangelo's secret hideaway or something like that, you know. And uh, the Beatles have been in there at least twice, if not three times, I think, in the last three weeks. Just a, any excuse to get them because everybody agrees that's something... That we all think makes us happy. It takes it us back it, to a it, happy place. It is it, is.
0: it is the nation's happy place. Isn't it is. It? Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Yeah. And uh, but of course, the weird thing over the you know the last few weeks, and particularly over the last week, is just noting the gathering excitement about this thing, you know, which is still sort of I've, it takes me aback somewhat. You know, so I get. I get German TV ringing me up and all these kind of things. Would you talk? Of course, I couldn't talk about it, you know, because I, whatever I was doing, I was doing for the Radio Times and so forth. But the whole world of the media for 24 hours this week was just seized with this fever to just want to be. I, I had Talk Sport, okay, the sports channel. Yeah. John Church wanted me to be on at 2 o'clock on whatever day it was that the that the record was released the day before yesterday. Thursday, before, yeah. Um, and, you know, even the Sports Channel was going was to abandon its normal programming in order to play this thing that's been put together. Let's not forget from a John Lennon demo from the 70s, which they had a go at in nineteen ninety. Thor, Thor yeah, whatever Thor. it was, um, abandoned it because they couldn't. They couldn't get the, the piano uh, separated from John Lennon's vocal, and then's been re, you know, reapproached in the last in the last year or so, thanks to uh, Peter Jackson's magical Mal machine, as they call it, it's the machine assist- assisted learning, um, and. And it's, the, it's like the world has just got itself into an absolute state about this record. Am I wrong to be... Well, no, no, you're, you're right, and they want to get into a
3: state because, um, you know, as I say, it's just, it's just a rare moment of warmth and good news and optimism. There was a lovely quote somebody put out the other day, Derek Taylor, and said, The Beatles gave us a continuing soundtrack of unparalleled charm and reassurance, and as long as they kept on delivering fresh songs along with the morning milk... Everything was right in our optimistic world. <laughs> and everyone was trying to get back to that, weren't they? And also the people who weren't, uh, you know, old enough to have been around and actually experienced a Beatles record coming out in their lifetime were really, really capitalising on that. And I thought that was wonderful, actually. I mean, I'm Th- sorry. So I like the only thing about- that worried me was that, was that the stakes were so impossibly high. How could this not be a crashing disappointment?
0: Well, there's nothing, there's nothing in between. You see, it's classic binary choice for our time. It is because it, you've either got to believe it's fantastic, or you've got to believe it's worthless. There's kind of nothing in between. So going back to what Mark was saying just there about you know uh, people who, who don't remember a Beatles record coming out in their lifetime, kind of thing. Here we have Alex Gold. <laughs> Alex, how do you receive it?
4: Well, um, I mean, I suppose it's a little bit like, I would equate the four of them being together on one screen, in one place, whatever, sharing the same space and the same sound. It's a bit like going home and visiting your mum and dad and seeing them at the same time. You know, there's just something really comforting about that combination of humans sharing the same space. And... Sitting um, together and not arguing. The happy family. Yeah,
3: absolutely, Parents aren't arguing, that's
4: right. I'll play whatever you want me to play. <laughs> um, but yeah, it was, um, there, there was something about the, the notion that there was a new thing coming out that just felt really lovely. And I mean, the thing that the Beatles have contributed to the world more than any other artist, I think, is, is happiness. They've just raised the sum of human happiness. And they've just got this uncanny ability to keep doing it. Um, and there's just something about their presence which I think just makes us feel good. And, I mean, personally, I didn't expect it to to change the world or be their best work or anything like that. And I, I don't think it's their, anywhere near their best work, actually. Uh, but I listened to it and I thought, yeah, that's, it was like finishing a really nice cup of hot chocolate.
0: You know, it, so, it's but, but, set you up for the rest of the evening. And you I know. think, you're, OK, I think you're right, but don't you think the most powerful force at work in this whole thing... Is our desperate desire to believe? It's more powerful than anything else at all. You know what I mean? We it, we want them to be there. Yeah, we, we do. And Me so, too. and so, any sign. I mean, you know, get back last year was fantastic because the, there they were in full effect. You know, you you were seeing you were seeing a band from the late sixties. <laughs> you doing that, and that band was the Beatles. That was extraordinary. Whereas compared to that, this is, you know, quite quite a, quite thin compared to the Well, it's thin it? also in that I suppose if,
3: you know, you've got to look at what you thought about Free as a Bird, which I have to say I thought was really disappointing, and Real Love, which I thought was slightly worse. The idea that this was the song that George Harrison said was rubbish and that they shouldn't carry on working on, gave you a pretty low threshold i think mm. but i i it's funny I was, I was listening to it live on radio too because i wanted to see what it was how they were going to introduce it and they were just going absolutely through the roof it's very entertaining at one point they said it's an historic day literally an historic day as if we're always saying that but this time we actually mean it you know <laughs> and scott mills introduced them as the original boy band which is one of those Devices that they use. Oh to try, God, I and, hate, try and connect I, no, I can't bear that. Try I and connect across the age them. groups, you know.
0: I loathe that. That's like, you know, that's that's the the tyranny of now, that the is. Complete you know? you now. Know, we can only we can only examine the past through our very, very narrow present. You know what yeah. I mean? It's the, That's same the only way we can get your attention, youngsters. Same kind of, same
3: kind By of thing. I'm saying they're in the same category as take that. Whatever. Yeah,
0: you, 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 you want to know what the American Civil War was like? It was like Black Lives Matter. You know what I mean? Yeah. There's like, yeah, yeah. yeah. the only measures we can use, and I wish they bloody stopped stop. It, no, no, it's it doesn't. Because all those terms, all those ways of of uh, classifying bands, arrived after the Beatles. You know what I mean? Nobody in 1966 said, "Are they a boy band? Are they a pop group? Are they a rock band?" No, those those things the did not occur. Yeah, they they were the Beatles. exactly, and you know, all the, they defined the turf that everybody else then later on went and went and divided up. You know, so go sorry, go on.
4: I was getting into the Beatles just as the anthology was coming out so that was kind of it kind of coincided with my introduction to them as a concept of everything um and I remember that and I I still really I know a lot of people don't um but I still really like Free as a Bird and um and Real Love because they represented a particular point in my life where music was all of a sudden in existence and it was really important and I think the 90s were all about scale and those records were really big and they had the big psychedelic videos or the animated effects kind of celebrating this massive legacy. It was all about the bells and whistles, you know, Um, and, you know, to tiny teenage me that felt tremendous and a really sort of good way in. Um, But this was kind of the complete opposite. It was a little it's quite muted, isn't it? And it's quite melancholic. It's not flashy. It's not it's not puffing its chest out and demanding attention it's sort of closing the door quietly rather than flouncing out and slamming it behind its back and i really like that about it no
3: i agree i mean i i must say i i I liked it very very much
4: and actually i i played it several
3: times in succession and each time i played it, i liked it more but I'd, i'd i'd convinced myself that the best way to look at it was not as a beatles song to see it as a john lennon solo track um with okay. the others kind of to some extent uh, backing him, and that somehow kind of works. I don't, I don't, I still don't think the, the earlier two singles as being part of the, the Beatles canon at all, actually. And yeah. that kind of really helps, and also because George Harrison doesn't appear to be on it at all. You can't, you can't hear him. Can't hear his guitar. You can't really hear him it, singing. It, 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 There's it, it's bits very, of the because vocals in there, but you know, you can't
4: pick out George Harrison. It's Paul McCloud, very, very Paul to take his solo, isn't it? Yeah,
3: Paul plays <laughs> the, the slide solo. So. Paul okay. also, I think, has written the, the. To be technical, I think he's written the chorus because it doesn't. Sound like you can't hear Lennon really in that bit, and it sounds yeah. such a McCartney thing. But the thing that struck me was was that what the essence of the Beatles, I think, for me, is the three of them singing together. You know, absolutely, as in Day Tripper or That's She Loves it. You or um, you know, or or a Twist and Shout or This Boy or Help or whatever. It's the sound of the three of them together is the absolute essence of the Beatles. And in your head, you imagine them doing that. But obviously, in this case, you can't you can 't imagine them doing that, and so that is a big part of it that's missing which you, there's nothing you can do about you know but I, I thought it was I thought the overall impression was of immense sadness, actually I thought real sadness that two of them weren't here anymore. I think real sadness that um, I look back at uh, me at the age of twelve or when I'm waiting by the radio to hear the new Beatles single coming on, and a I associated with missing that time. It's really easy
0: to look back at the 1960s, which I'm sure it wasn't at the time, but can, in your can head you, you
3: imagine it as being warm and
0: warm and wonderful, you know. Can, can you, I was sitting there thinking about it this morning, can you remember the first time you heard a classic Beatles single? Can you remember it? Really? Uh, yes, I can remember. Well, I can remember the, well, can on, remember the first on. time I heard the Beatles. Go on, no, all right. No, okay. All right. What's Is that record? different? No, I want to know a specific record release when you heard it. Can you remember that? I can remember. I think remember. it would be She Loves You, probably. I don't remember hearing She Loves You for the first time. I remember hearing I, I Want to Hold Your Hand for the first time because that was on Thank You, Lucky Stars, the ATV you know, pop show. On telly, and they used to have uh, a kind of Duke jury knockoff at the end where they would have a few members of the public who would, who would listen to the laser records, and then the camera would scan across the, uh, the studio audience while the girls tapped their feet or did the hand jive or whatever. Yeah. And they played on, oh, your hand. And I thought, my God, this is the most exciting thing I've ever heard in my life. And then I can remember hearing day trip a week and work it out, sitting at the tea table at home with my mother and my sister play, playing on the kind of medium wave radio and me just basically going, shh, yeah. shh. Because you knew when you heard it and you had to play both sides that you weren't going to hear it again for two weeks.
3: We had, we had a thing where where we, we, we would take turns I had three older sisters and we, we, we would um, we would take turns to sit by the radio <laughs> and the others would just muck around uh, go around the house and get on with life you know and suddenly and then you would be swapped and someone else would stand in for you for the next hour <laughs> just in case they, they'd, they'd sort of go swinging blue jeans no no
4: <laughs> <You> no <know>, it's <laughs> the kings, so, oh
3: great okay I come to the but you're waiting to hear the Beatles single it was just the most precious thing
4: imaginable. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Do you so, think that it's kind of fitting in its own way that their sort of their last, their last endeavour, if it, if it is, you know, um, is uh, after a career of absolute firsts and pioneering and just kind of setting so many templates, um, has been something that's eminently kind of progressive and futuristic, and in the sense that you've got eighty-year-old Paul McCartney, Ringo Starr. Collaborating with a 40-year-old John and a and a 55-year-old George that don't exist anymore, and they, you know, and, and I don't think that's ever been done on on like on a popular scale before. And do you, do you think that perhaps like that, that's kind of their, their final bit of legacy, isn't it? You know, perhaps changing the way that records are created and released and just thought of. You know, do you think it
0: will happen with other artists? Well, I don't know. Very, I don't know. I couldn't think of another act that has that kind of narrative power mm. and I think what this is about is a narrative you know what I mean it's too dead too alive you know what I mean? and you know this this one died then this one died and the other two are still alive and I don't think I don't think we feel that way about anything else in popular music it doesn't. It, it strike, that's the way it strikes me. I'll tell you the other thing, though, going back to what you said earlier about your memories of getting into the Beatles roundabout, the anthologies and so forth, I really do think there were there, there were kind of, you know, the, the Beatles have had many careers. You know, they had the first career as kind of mop tops and then the second career as psychedelic adventures. And then they had another career which began in the early 90s. Which, is, which was anthology, Britpop, the elevation of, you know, this thing that had happened years earlier mm. into something totally different, you know. And I think you find cases of this, if, if you, look in the, you look in the history of loads of um, arts and entertainment phenomena, you know, Shakespeare in his day was just one of many playwrights. It wasn't until long after he died. That it it was suddenly he was suddenly elevated above the rest of them, and and it was decided Shakespeare is something is something special. I think you find cases of this cases of this elsewhere in in entertainment and the arts and whatever. And and so the Beatles were more venerated in the nineties than they were in the sixties and the early seventies, weren't they, Mark? They that's were absolutely, yeah. That's, that's the impression I of, got
4: because. When I arrived, they were absolutely at the top of the pyramid and they've sort of sat there ever since. And I can't fathom a world where that's not the case, that hierarchy doesn't exist, you know. Um, I just but don't you think it. a
3: lot of that's to do with the fact that, you know, when I was watching that Peter Jackson uh, video, which we should talk about actually, uh, the, the 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 it's thing that strikes you of many is that you're... It's reactivating those times. It makes you thinking about. It makes you think about the '60s, and it makes you think about their importance they, in a larger social context. And of course, at the time when we were all applauding them and getting excited about them, it was the present, and we didn't think of them as the people who, in any way, changed society. We've only kind of realized that in retrospect, really. And I think that's part of because is you're looking back and seeing them as part of. The kind of DNA of British culture and, and 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 world culture actually, so that's one of the reasons why there's so much more. Um, I think so much more venerated now.
0: The the Peter Jackson video, um, it, it, it struck me it was kind of like. It's like fan fiction, was, <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. You know, you know when people take the idea of, I don't know, a, a sitcom like Friends or yeah. whatever, and then just rewrite it endlessly to make themselves feel better, you know what I mean? Yeah. The characters doing whatever they wanted them to do. That struck me as about what he'd done with this, with uh, w- with the video, you know, you get these shots of the you know, the, the the four of them supposedly singing together, you know, one who died in 1980 and, and so forth.
3: That's what Alex was saying, really, and I thought that was pretty amazing, you know, that it was the technological thing. There's a moment where you get George and Ringo and Paul in 1994 and they factor in John into the room, and it's, it's not remotely corny, actually. It really seems to work. There's a bit where they have the footage from this year, don't they, of Paul and Ringo, with the two of them either side, I, I think both of them in their kind of Sgt Pepper rabbits, and again, that's an extraordinary thing to see the four of them actually in the same room. You get the old Ringo and the young Ringo drumming alongside each other and looking at each other. There's a moment where Paul's sitting around, I think, during the solo, and the others. Are, and he also he's picked these really humorous moments of the Beatles, which is really good. It's not the kind of somber thing. It's them kind of idiot dancing as them mucking about on stage, and there they are, like these ghosts around McCartney. And I thought that was really actually really convincing and really clever and, and very moving, actually.
0: There's one shot in the middle of that that I, I really struck me, and it was it was filmed very near where you're sitting right now, Mark. Which it is. is. Uh, there is a shot of George in Chiswick Park. Chiswick Park. It just looking absolutely perfect, looking you know fantastic I mean? by the big and, old tree. The, and yeah. the 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 other thing is that um, i will tell you the other thing that this made me think of. It's like uh, 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 it's like. Um, FIFA, the kind of you know the, the video games and so forth, you know, so that so that you get you get you get video games move into this kind of hyper reality, don't they? In the, the, the way the the way they look, and at the same time you get coverage of football on the telly reaches for the same hyper-reality. So almost doesn't look real anymore, you know what I mean? It it expresses a fantasy. Mm -hmm. And so you look at that, you think, that's moved above its its context, its original context, you know. It just lives in a completely different place now. And I suppose that is, that's what's going to happen with all entertainment (laughs) evermore, isn't it? You know, it's going to be out there being remixed, played with enhanced or whatever brought back and forth you know you know what I mean so it's sort of like Star Wars or marvel or, or, or James Bond you know it just lives in its own dimension nowadays doesn't it seem to you to be that way yes, I think it does
3: yeah I, I mean it's just yeah it's it's, it's just enormously um enlarged, everything has far greater resonance, doesn't it? There's a bit in it where, um, which is absolutely amazing, and they'd build it beforehand as being this unseen bit of footage. And because any tiny bit of footage of the Beatles, any any single shot, is completely thrilling. And it's the bit at the very end. Did you see that where they're in their leather jackets and they're playing a gig? It was recorded on a cine yeah, camera that was, in
4: 1962, was
3: that? and it's of them at the St. Paul's Presbyterian Church in Birkenhead, February 62. Was-
4: Meant to be a, that was donated by Pete Best, wasn't it? Allegedly?
3: Pete Best's brother, I think, bought it up a bloke with a cine camera, you know. And uh, again, those, those, the, the the value of that, as Dave was saying, that's just amplified and amplified and amplified. And uh, it just seemed it was fantastic to see that. I was really thrilled. And also the bits of footage of New York City as well, the home clips of Lennon playing, which I'd never seen before. Lennon playing the guitar to Sean in the Dakota building.
1: So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Brilliant. I
4: really like but, the notion as well that they are getting to consciously and deliberately close the book themselves rather than, you know, have it snatched from them by John and George dying. Do, do, do you know what I mean? I know it's a bit kind of wispy yeah. and ethereal, but um, it's really like the... Just just thinking that they have ownership over this now. They've decided to stop and it's their choice. And that, you know, I think um, because because we all love the Beatles so much, you kind of want that for them. You kind of want them to be able to make that decision and not have it made for them in circumstances... Do you think he will be the last,
0: though? I don't think
3: I mean, that's the thing, you know, there's (laughs) McCartney, I I think it's really interesting, and I'm really sympathetic. McCartney is, however old McCartney is now, 82? So he's 82, so, okay, in 10 years' time he'll be 92. Let's say he doesn't do as much now. Let's say he he can't, whatever. He isn't as active. He's going to have to sit there and watch his legacy. He, he will never At the see the peak that. it is now. Can you imagine it can't you think it cannot get any bigger? It can only decline if there's nothing new coming out. There's to nothing new driving it. <laughs> There's actually, if there's not new product, then it very, very rapidly, it goes off the front burner and it gets, it just gets pushed to the back and it gets slightly forgotten. And I really sympathize with him over that because he's throwing everything out he can at the moment. The, old, the photo exhibition, the lyric book, you know, the, um, and don't, the, the don't drawings forget,
0: that. And don't forget, he's on tour in Australia, right? Yeah, next, yeah he is. Um, and where, uh, where can it go from this, though? I mean, surely Well, I mean, have, I think
4: what
3: I think
0: they can find... Go my before, theory
3: Mark. is no. that they won't have a kind of... Uh, that's the final thing. They've just done it now. They can't then do another final thing. But what they will do is they will find extracts. If you look to Get Back, Get Back was full of snippets, sections, I don't know, 30 seconds, 45 seconds, a minute, of songs that we didn't really know. Half a pound of grease paint, for example, which is an absolutely wonderful. There's about 45-second section of that McCartney <laughs> singing That stuff they will find, I think, and they will clean up and they will put little combinations of these things out and they will put them in as part of new anthology-type packages. So there will be material you haven't heard, but there won't be the big kind of, right, that's the final thing, because you can't follow the end of the Peter Jackson video, which was, no, it's, it's inevitable, nice. but it was really good. And there's the four of them bowing. And then they just, the figures fade fade away. away. And I thought it was absolutely fantastic. There was a a, 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 a classically kind of cynical tweet from Peter, from David Quantic the other day where he said, uh, he said, "On, on November the 1st, 2097, the human race lives underground in tunnels, hiding from robots and radiation. The sun is shrouded in a cloud of airborne plastic waste. And the last Beatles single, synthesised from a cough attributed to Pete Best, <laughs> is out on Monday. <laughs> and I just thought, I knew what he meant, you know. It's just, but it's irresistible for them. They won't be able to stop because they will keep finding things. In the same way as Peter Jackson said, I won't do this video, which is a brilliant I think way of telling the, the story. It. I won't do it. And then suddenly he said, well, actually, we've got all these, and there's not enough footage. They said, we have got loads of footage. And suddenly a load of footage that no one had ever seen appeared. So if there is stuff available, which there obviously is, we will eventually
4: get to here and see it. We just will. I wouldn't be entirely surprised if Macca turned up in two years going, well, yeah, so we were able to uh, clone John using DNA from Dolly the Sheep and that would be the next level.
0: <laughs> <laughs> is it, he's, you know, he's the most active member, isn't he? You know, and, and always was, you know, and he's, He's just very restless, Paul McCartney, isn't he? He has to be doing something, you know. I suppose um, if you've been Paul McCartney
4: since you were 19 years old, you, you just don't know how to do anything else, do you? I but mean, also you just...
3: want to sustain that.
4: I mean, I think yeah, yeah. it would be really hard. He's at the point now where if he was to
3: walk into a Lady Gaga gig, as he did the other day, or or a Courtney uh, over a Taylor Swift gig or whatever, then the whole world is just... You know, tweeting little clips of him, and he just couldn't get any more excitement around the idea that he's he's in the room, and to see that disappear and slowly evaporate would be hard to deal with. It just would, and I don't, and I don't blame him for wanting to sustain it. And he yeah. will do. He will
0: do. Yeah. So talking to Giles Martin, um, it, I thought it was very interesting in that <laughs> he was talking about the whole Vex business of. Uh, of um, putting together this kind of material because because the thing that I I think is interesting is that the is that the red and Blue albums are being reissued with additional tracks you know that were not previously on those records uh, to more to more accurately re- reflect the kind of Beatles that are listened to nowadays which is more kind of the trippier stuff, more than the personal pronoun stuff, I suppose, if you can put it that way, and also to redress, <coughs> excuse me, to redress some previous imbalance in terms of the material of, of George Harrison and this stuff. A lot of it is being heard in kind of indecent sound for the first time for a long, long time because you know the very early recordings were done. You know, very crude stereo. So the first stereo releases of "The Lights of Love Me Do" and I saw her standing there, and so forth, were were all the band entirely on one in one channel. But anyway, the thing that uh, Giles Martin said he wanted to do was his objective is to make it sound like people remember it sounding, yeah. Yeah. which isn't necessarily the same as how it sounded. Uh, and he, used, he was explaining to me this uh, in the context of um, he did the sound for uh, the Martin Scorsese film about George Harrison and he's was very forthright about this he said um, he got a call from Olivia and Harrison saying Marty wants to fire you because he doesn't like your revisionist approach to recording and, and so he said oh fine I've got other things to do or whatever few weeks later they ring him up say we just had a screening of the film and the sound is terrible would you meet Marty in a studio and so yes he met him in some edit whatever and so on. and uh, they ran the film and then they, they ran the soundtrack um, that um, that Marty had and then uh, and, and Giles Marty was able to just pressing one button you know change the soundtrack to to something that sounded immensely kind of widescreen and rich and so forth. And Martin says says, What's that? He says, that's the version I did that you didn't like. And because So ha! Now how do you feel? <laughs> Fished in. <laughs> I thought it was quite interesting, you know, because what Charles Martin is saying is saying is our memories of sound we we supply so much from our memories, we color in the things that are missing, so if you yeah. actually go and listen to what you would have heard in nineteen sixty nine it it's not very satisfying to you at all nowadays, whereas you know so his job is is to make it sound the way people remember it sounding, yeah. Even though their memories aren't necessarily very accurate, and also the memories are very different according to what generation they come from. And anyway, I've heard a load of this stuff, and it sounds really good to me. Um, and uh, but, but but the odd thing with the red and the blue albums is is you've got this now got this strange imbalance. You got records that were supposedly came from what 1962 to 66, and then 66 to 70, and then oh, and then yes. suddenly oh, by <laughs> the way, 2023. <laughs> it's, it's a bit of a by way of 1994. <laughs> yes, I know. Uh, but that's obviously what they want, what they needed to do, you know. Because don't forget, underneath it all, let's not forget this: this is a money-making enterprise. That's what is. That's what's driving it isn't it? You know, if you're an Apple call, you've got to keep coming up with stuff. You may not do it absolutely all the time, but you've got to do it while you can, you know. So uh, I think you've got to balance up all these things, you know, all these things together.
2: This is a junction in the Word podcast. It separates that bit from this next bit.
0: Final thought on the fabs, Alex, you're currently on the Ocean Wave impersonating John Lennon in a Beatles cover band. And if anybody knows a lot about the world of, of Beatles cover bands, it's you. Now, the Beatles broke up when they were what age, Mark?
3: Well, they would have been uh, twenty nine. 20, 29,
4: they Twenty nine, all under 30, weren't they, I think?
0: They were all, yeah. seven, they were all under jo- John 30.
3: John was 30, jo- George was only about 26,
4: 27.
0: Okay. They were under they were all, 30, basically. They were all under 30. What, from your experience, is the average age of a Beatles impersonator?
4: Quite a bit above 30. <laughs> <laughs> do I, do, I, I've told you about well, the was oldest. John
2: Lennon in the
3: bootleg Beatles. I he mean, was certainly in his mid-sixties. <laughs> but then, seen in the distance in the Royal Albert Hall with sympathetic lighting
4: <laughs>
3: and uh, heavy makeup, you would I, never know.
4: I'm sure I've told you about the George I played with on the one ship. You who did. Was Ling, who was Ringo's dad? Yeah, <laughs> six, six, <laughs> 69 years old and had just recovered from major brain surgery. And we learnt to walk no hadn't quite relearned to play the guitar yet yeah that was a ride <laughs> that was wild uh, and actually the george i'm with now lovely chap um he's he's 20 so i've, I've oh played, well god I've pl- wow. playing with a george who is uh 12 years older than the real george was when he left this mortal <laughs> call and i'm i'm currently playing with a george who's too young to drink on this ship.
3: no so That's there it's
4: a Old world. <laughs> it'll go, it really
3: it'll go on forever. It will go <laughs> on forever. When are you going to do a version of Now and Then on stage?
4: Oh, gosh. Well, we haven't had any, any calls for it yet, but um, it's
3: it's it's only a matter of time. You wait. Side. On cruise ships <laughs> oh, yeah. in 30 years' time. <laughs> <laughs> That's where they'll be.
2: The Word Podcast. It passes the time.
0: Okay, mailbag. That's what we call it, isn't it? Um, James, a very Carter. melody maker. Very melody maker. LP winner. LP winner. Uh James Carter wanted to know what we've thought about autocues because he says they seem de rigueur nowadays. He says, can't singers be bothered to learn the lyrics. It's their job, isn't it? Isn't it just laziness? Elvis Costello never had one. Not sure if he does now. And just think how wordy his songs are. For me, if I see a singer looking down to an autocue every other line, they're not there in that moment. And I haven't spent my hard-earned cash to see someone gaze at a screen on and off for two hours. Fifty years ago, 50 (laughs) years ago, did one, even two LPs a year alongside the constant touring and no autocue. Well... I have entertained the same thought myself, James. You know, because it never used to happen twenty, thirty years ago, did it? Um, whereas nowadays, increasingly, people use autocons. I think the first person I ever saw use one was Dolly Parton. Um, uh, where absolutely everything was, you know, even Jolene, the lyrics were, were coming up for autocue. You thought, for goodness' sake, if you can't remember that,
3: it's a poor affair. I saw but, the same thing with Diana Ross at Madison Square Garden. But don't you think that if you once you start using autocue, there's no going back. I mean, you I must have thought, you, you have must thought just to... think, well, my brain has kind of switched off. I no longer feel required to learn a load of lyrics. And actually, I feel real sympathy for these people. I really do. Don't you think, how can you also you've that thing where if you got the lyric wrong, you know, you're
0: wrecking that experience. If you can't remember the last verse or whatever. It's I, tell you, I tell you the person I really like who, um, who consulted lyric sheets and, and sheet music on stage, but not the autocue. You and I went to see a really good show at the Shepherds Bush Empire some years ago, given by Lucindia Williams. Yeah. And Lucindia Williams still does, I think, appear on stage with the music stand. Music stand with a lyric book. With, with a, a book. It's probably got more than lyrics in it. You know, it's got, she's, she's put laminate on all the pages because it obviously get used every night. And so pretty much when she decides to do a new song, she just flicks through the book, goes to page 36, there it is, and then they launch into it. Yeah. I like that. It seems a very forthright way of doing it. it was,
1: actually,
3: because she wasn't trying to hide it. Not at all. It's I, I all. first saw it at the Shepherd's Bush Empire, where, where, where Dylan was playing, and he had his lyrics printed out on pieces of paper on a little table beside his keyboard. When he leaned in to play the keyboard, he was close enough to the paper to be able to read them. And I thought that was fair enough. It kind of, if you noticed it, you didn't mind it. If you didn't notice it, you weren't aware anyway. But I don't know. I mean, I, I, once, I, I just cannot believe how people can remember all these lyrics and remember other people's songs. If it's a song you wrote yourself, you've got a distinct advantage. But, I mean, Springsteen uses autocue, doesn't he,
0: quite a lot well, I mean, he does, yeah, because they, they also use, the, well, they have done, uh, in recent years, use this thing where people can turn up and request that he'll, he'll sing anything yeah. from Waterloo Sunset to kind of knock on water or whatever. And... Um, and they, they actually, they're downloading the words from the internet while, wow. he's doing the, while he's doing the kind of banter, you know, going through the signs that people have held up. And then they've got the lyrics of, you know, hold on, we coming already in front of him, you know. He can start doing it, you know. But I suppose it is true what you say, Mark, that once you, once you decide that you're no longer going to remember them yourself, that, that muscle must just switch it off. It must switch muscle. off. It's just like think, actors. If you ask
3: actors, you know, yes. what it's like learning stuff, they say, well, as long as you keep doing it, you're fine. If you if do a new theatrical production, you've got to learn a whole part, then you do that, and that's fine. But the moment you stop doing that and just start doing <coughs> films, you know, where you're doing only, I don't know, if you're looking for four or five minutes a day, you can learn that stuff quite easily in little sections. That's partly one of the reasons why I think people still do theatre, to keep that ability going.
0: Yeah, yeah. Although I went to the theatre um, last week. I went to see Pig at and the Old Vic uh, with Bertie Carvel. It's fantastic. But I couldn't, and I had really good seats. I was on the fourth <laughs> row. And one of the reasons I like going to the theatre is I like seeing the the old skills still, you know, being demonstrated, being practised, you know. Um, but after a while you're thinking, hang on no? What's that little cable going round the back of his ear, and and curling down and under his collar, which I can see because I'm on row four? That's the microphone which has been placed in his hair. <laughs> yes, it'll be dangling down. Won't oh it? Yeah. right. Well, it's not even dangling down. Very often it's just in the hair or or whatever, uh-huh. and you wouldn't notice it if you're half back at all. You know. I think the one I had in All or Nothing just rested just below my sideburn
4: yeah. line. So it was nowhere near my mouth, but it yeah. still picked it up. I
3: thought you were going to say it was an earpiece and he was getting uh, getting No, prompts. no. <laughs> <laughs> He's
4: probably getting a feed to the, the, the band in the pit or, or something like that. Um, there'll be some kind of... Or, or, or monitoring with his fellow actors. There'll be something to do with monitoring with, with the earpiece, for
0: sure. Um, mm. but I, I, I think it's only a matter of time, surely, before it
2: turns up in football. The Word podcast. Clearly, there is no plan.
3: Another piping hot story. You heard it here last. <laughs> it's Buffy St. Marie, which is an extraordinary tale. Because <laughs> she always claimed that she was born in 1941, didn't she? <laughs> uh, on a Cree reserve in Canada, in Saskatchewan. And uh, that she was removed from her birth family and adopted by a white American family called the St. Marie's. And there was been a, a documentary out uh, very recently alleging to have found her birth certificate, which claims that she was born in 1941, but in Stoneham, Massachusetts, yes. to Albert and Winifred Santa Maria, her supposed adoptive parents, who are listed as white. Now, these are the people that she claimed were her adoptive parents, but the birth certificate, the certificate indicates that they're her real parents. So this is a really peculiar story because, it's firstly, if, if they weren't her real parents, why would they have told her, as she's claiming, that she was adopted and that she came from, uh, from an, uh, a Native American reserve? And, you know, and her entire career, Dave, has been based on the notion that she's, you know, First Nation. Isn't it really? I mean, you know, she. she See, it's, only like,
0: it's kind of like Bob Dylan's entire career was based on the back, yeah. the idea that he was a bit of a hobo, you know? yeah. <laughs> that he, if he talked about it enough, that he 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 was it, you know what I mean? And uh, she obviously this persona arose, whether whether genuinely or whether she, you know, built it up consciously. This must have you know, arisen when she entered the kind of entertainment business at the age of nineteen twenty, and once you've once you've you, you pitched your tent there, you're pretty much stuck with it. Aren't Absolutely, you really? that's how she identifies. That's how you? she identifies. Yeah, yeah, and, yeah. You know, loads of her songs were you know kind of. Had shades of of this kind of thing about them, didn't yep. they? And uh, and and loads of her album titles and album covers and so forth. And now, she's how old, Mark? Did you I say? I think him? I think she's eighty two. I'm pretty sure she is. She's definitely born in forty one. So to have that kind of rug pulled
3: out from it, and, and you know, I looked at her Wikipedia site, and they've entered all this information as if it's been absolutely established that it's true. She's saying that it isn't, but then again, she's got one of her. Nieces is saying that there's absolutely no question of her being Indigenous or Native American. That's her own niece, her brother's daughter. So it's a very peculiar story. (laughs) But it did make me think there are various examples. One is Sixto Rodriguez. Do you remember that with the Searching for Sugar Man film came out? Everyone's going right, okay. We we take this on board. You know, Sugar Man. He made those records in the early seventies, and he was living in Detroit. then cassette got into South America and became really huge and then eventually he was tracked down and there he was and he was brought back and he played a concert in But actually during that period of time, he was playing concerts in Australia. He played <laughs> some concerts in Australia in 2000 and I think 2009 and 10 or whatever. The film didn't come out until 2012. So he was actually still active as a musician, but we just preferred to believe that version of it. You know, the other one's yeah. C6 Steve, isn't it? C6, yeah, Steve. Yes. Yes. C6 Steve in a very Dylan-like way. Sold himself as being interestingly 10 years older than he actually was. I mean, most people <laughs> lock 10 years off. Not him, he added 10 years and said that he was just a hobo. Hadn't he been living riding rail cars and, you know, lighting canned heat to warm his soup and all that kind of stuff? And was subsequently discovered that actually, very successful career as a record producer. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, he'd done he did, he did, he did a Modest Mouse album, hadn't he, I think? A, uh, yeah, and he was in a disco group. It. He'd done about 50 albums, and he fronted a disco group called Crystal Grass. I think there's even footage of him playing in this band. Some so what
0: we're, what we're saying is all you know, he's about as authentic as Manuel and his Music of the Mountains, you know, which was yeah, yeah. actually the work, work of Jeff Love, who yeah. lived in Enfield. Yeah. <laughs> this is... This is the way it goes. This is yeah. the way it goes.
2: The Word Podcast, one of the few things you really need in life.
0: So Crowded had made two albums, um, which have been quite successful in the United States, and uh, then they were due to make a third one. They presented the demos for the third one to the record company. You we weren't very pleased with them. Pretty much said there's no singles here or whatever. Around about the same time, Neil and Tim had been working on a record of just the the, the two brothers together. And that did have a load of really good songs and uh, potential hits. So they pretty much decided to put the two things together, you know. Which is really interesting in terms of the politics of the band, you know. So the, the you know the breakthrough hits of "Crowded House," certainly in the UK. You know, "Weather with You" and things like this. They were all about the blend between between Neil and Tim, you know. And and I remember interviewing them on my famous GLR program um, round about the time this, this came out. And they'd just arrived in Britain. To do a tour, and uh, and they came on the programme and, and played a load of songs from this record and talked about it and so forth and started the tour, and then a few days later Tim had left. <laughs> you know that was it. You know there was obviously. There's just always—it's friction always there, you know, never too far below the surface. It's so. pretty deep-seated with those two, isn't it? It
4: is.
3: It's so often the case with brothers. With it brothers, is. Because they it know is. stuff about each other, brothers, and they go back such a long way. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. Little things that will reactivate an argument they had when they were six.
0: And they've still, you know, they, they've regrouped, you know, over the years and made other records with the two of them. All of which are really good, you know. The Finn Brothers Records—they're—they're they're really good. They're a thing, thing of their own, you know. And uh, you know, so fantastic music's come from it. But the other thing—the other thing struck me, which is amazing, when they, you know, they finally got this record made, and then they had one, this one really uncharacteristic song, "Chocolate Cake," which was a kind of act, attack on American gluttony and consumerism uh, and takes pot shots at Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tammy Faye Baker and all kinds of people. And it's very uncharacteristic. And they said, we want this to be the first single. And their manager said, you must be out your mind. And then the record company said, you must be out your mind. And they just were determined it was going to be the first single. It came out... It was a disaster. American radio chose to have nothing to do with them for the next two years. It absolutely put their career back. All entirely their own fault. And they couldn't say they hadn't been told because they were told many times over, you know. And, And I've had you know, reason to regret it absolutely ever ever since, you know. So I know people have always got this idea that that the suits and the record company, they get their own way, you know. Well, they don't as often as you think, no. actually. Because very often bands are, are given their head to do these things and they very often do really stupid things. Yeah. And the guys at Grand House are not stupid people at all we can imagine how it just becomes one of those things but you think that any
3: musician would have the sense to realize that you know their feelings about something that they wrote and what went into the writing of that doesn't make any difference at all to the people listening to it and so the a and r people the people who are looking at it from the point of view of, of the general
0: consumer public yeah that's that's a really valuable very very valuable perspective Absolutely, and so you know. Thankfully, it was made up for. Well, partially made up for by the fact that "Weather with You" and these these records were a big hit in the UK and Europe and other places, and it's kind of made up for their uh, for the lack of success in the United States at that time. But let that be a lesson to you. Listen to your A and R man.
2: The word podcast. What's wrong with being sexy?
0: Alex, what news of new patron supporters? We have some uh, new
4: subscribers to welcome into the fold. Um, And I'm going to tell you who they are. They are Graham Johns. Hello, Graham. Welcome. Ben Winfrey. Hello, Ben. Terrific. And the next Clutch of patrons are all annual subscribers. Now, if you subscribe annually, you get 15% off your yearly subscription, which is, of course, well worth it. And they are f- um, Paul Kent. Hello,
0: Paul. Chris Carey. Hello, Chris. Excellent. And Andy Blamey. And Andy as well. They're all they? extremely welcome. As would you be if you cared to join them. And let's remind people how they might do that, Alex. Well, first of all, you should go to the link in the show notes,
4: which is uh, patreon.com slash word in your ear. Um, And you will be greeted by an array of various membership tiers, all with different kinds of benefits. Um, There uh, is the Friday Night Quiz um, patron tier, where you get um, access to our weekly Friday Night Quiz, uh, which is a favourite of the community. Um, there is the podcast patrons here where you get access to all of our podcasts early and ad-free. Um, the videocast tier gets you all of that, plus access to all of our videos ad-free and early also. And the clubhouse tier, um, you get all of that, plus uh, once a year on your birthday, you get the chance to, for Mark and Dave so come round digitally. Literally,
0: literally come to your house. No. <laughs> <laughs>
4: well,
0: it's digitally digital,
3: come to your house, but it's, it's, it's very digital. good fun. And you can get out your obscure and most wonderful records and uh, and wave them at us Indeed. and the general public. It's very good And on good top fun. of
4: that, you get an invite to our by Word, Word in Your Ear meetups <laughs> as well, which happen at various pubs in central London and are well worth attending. So Excellent. Uh,
2: there we are. This podcast was brought to you by The Word.
1: Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rustolium's new custom spray five-in-one gives you control with five different spray patterns, so you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom spray five-in-one, only from Rustolium. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for fifty to eighty percent less than similar brands.